We are the royal family of God, assembled ourselves together in the local church to obey the command we find in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, to keep on doing this in remembrance of me. What, the ritual that we are about to observe is known by different names. Some call it the Eucharist. That comes from the Greek word eucharisteia, which means thankfulness. So we have a sense of thankfulness, especially when we reflect back on what our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ did for us. This word is used in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, and verse 16. It's also known as the Lord's Supper, and that's kyriakon dipnon in the Greek, found in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 20. This meal is synonymous with the Lord's table that is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 21. Some also call this communion. And it comes from the Greek word koinonia, which is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16. And it means a festival in common or fellowship. It really doesn't matter what term you use in order to refer to this ritual. But what is important is that we realize why we do it. That Jesus Christ came to this earth not just to live an exemplary life, in fact, a perfect life, to set the standard of morality and the way that people should live. He did that. But his mission was to go to the cross to atone for our sins. That was his mission. Now, where is the first time that we see atonement brought up in the Bible? Well, if you'll take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 3, verse 21, we see what happened after Adam and his wife Eve sinned. They were in a hopeless, helpless condition. God is the one that had to reach out to man. We love because He first loved us. And so in Genesis chapter 3, verse 21, it says, Then the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Note that this is the first account of an animal being slain for sinful man. But they were not allowed to eat the, uh, the animals. This was the first sacrifice, the first atonement that pointed towards the cross. Innocent blood had to be shed for Christ to cover them. Of course, that was pointing to the sacrifice, the atonement that Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, would make for us on the cross. Later, God would clothe or cover Noah and his family in the ark. You might not think of it in terms of being clothed, but that's essentially what it was. You turn to Genesis chapter 6 and verse 14. Genesis chapter 6 and verse 14. Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. You shall make the ark with rooms and shall cover it inside and out with pitch. I want you to underline or circle the word pitch. The Hebrew word for pitch is kafar, K-A-P-H-A-R. And that word means 
a redemption price or atonement. It means to cover over or to propitiate, which means to satisfy. The ark was covered with atonement, which would cover or atone for our sins. Isn't that something? Things changed after the flood and man uh, could start eating meat. We find this in Genesis chapter 9, verse 3. You might want to go there. Some of you might already be thinking about eating. And you need to clear the decks and keep concentrating for a while. But you will be glad about Genesis 9.3. Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give all to you as I gave the green plant. So the first thing God did was take animals and sacrifice them to clothe the first two humans. And then he covered the ark, which was a word that means they were covered, the, the atonement and so forth. But they couldn't eat the animals then. But then by Genesis uh, chapter 9, they were able to eat anything. But then later on, after Moses came along and God gave him the Mosaic law, then there were restrictions on what they could eat. I would not have liked to have been under the Mosaic Law for a lot of reasons. But I like my pork. And they couldn't eat it. Of course, there's a lot of things that they could not eat. However, during our age, the church age, it has changed yet again with regards to what we can eat. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 4 through 5, it says, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. For it is sanctified, set apart for blessing, by means of the Word of God and prayer. When I was on my cruise, when we were on our cruise, I should say, I was so glad of that verse. I ate calamari for the first time. And it was good. Now, Jesus gave the most important information regarding eating and drinking. And I want you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 6 and verse 47. Verse 47 is a very important verse. You go, might as well go ahead and circle that address. It's yet another very simple instruction with regards to how to receive eternal life to be saved. John 6:47 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. You don't see works. You don't see penance. You don't see any of those things. It's all about believing. And you need to keep that verse and that verb, that believing, who, who believes in mind as we cover the rest of these verses because some get it very mixed up. Verse 48, Christ said, I am the bread of life. Now, we understand that Jesus Christ was speaking figuratively here. Jesus Christ was not a loaf of bread. So he's already setting up the figurative pattern that he's going to follow in the next few verses. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and died. You remember who they were. They were the ones who were crybabies, would not go into the land. God promised them, I will give you this land. I will go before you. I will wipe out the, the heathens. And yet... They would not go, and so God said, all right, put them back in the wilderness, and a whole generation died. They ate manna, which was supernaturally provided for them by God. 
So he's making a point. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they died. And then he said, this is the bread which comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. When he said this, I'm, it seems for certain that he was probably pointing to his own body. This is the bread that comes down from out of heaven. So he's making a distinction between physical bread that kept the Israelites alive out in the Hornada, out in the desert. And yet he's saying, now you need a spiritual type of bread. I am that bread. I am what you need to eat in order to have eternal life and live forever with God. Now, he says that, that for them to understand the distinction between the two, Verse 51, he says again, I am the living bread that came out, down out of heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. Now, the word eats there, I want you to underline that. And figurative, well, figuratively, what that is referring to is believing. He is making a physical representation out of eating his own flesh which, of course, he was not advocating cannibalism here. He was making a distinction between eating something that would save the body physically, which was done in the wilderness, with the bread that he provides, which was his body, which when they eat it, meaning believed in him, that they would have eternal life. So, verse... 51 again, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats or believes in this bread, meaning him, he will live forever. And the bread also which I give for the life of the world is my flesh. In a few moments, we're going to be partaking of bread. It's unleavened bread. The unleavened always speaks of Christ's perfection, his impeccability. Because leaven speaks of sin and Jesus Christ had no sin ever. If he had committed one sin, he would have been disqualified to go to the cross. So then he goes on in verse 52. Then the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? They just didn't get it. See, they were spiritually dead. They could only think in physical terms. So they didn't, they didn't understand what he was saying, even though it, should have, it would be... Under, uh, understandable to anybody who was spiritually alive. Verse 53. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in yourself. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood, and you might underline eat and drink, those are metaphors for believing in Jesus Christ. Remember what verse 47 said? I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will rise him, uh, raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Uh, true drink. Uh, that reminds me of when Christ was talking to uh, the woman at the well. And he started talking to her about water. And he started talking to her about living water. She didn't know what he was talking about. But again, the same idea is what we see here. Now, if you have it opened in your Bible and you have room in your margin to write a note or so, this would be a good thing to make a notation of. Eating and drinking refers to faith. And in the physical analogy, anyone can eat, anyone can drink. Anyone can eat of Christ's flesh and drink of his blood, which are metaphors both for simply believing in Jesus Christ. And we have the high honor this morning to make a public demonstration of our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ by eating of the unleavened bread and drinking from the cup is a public demonstration that you have placed your entire faith upon the Lord Jesus Christ. The eating is analogous to having faith that the humanity of Christ 
was a qualified sacrifice for us because the eating speaks of his, his body. And when you eat of the flesh, you're, you're essentially acknowledging that you believe that Jesus Christ was perfect, he was the Son of God, and he, did, he was qualified. And when you eat of that unleavened bread, that is what you are professing outwardly. And then the blood refers to his spiritual death on the cross. No one is saved because Jesus Christ bled on the cross because that was not the payment. The payment was separation from God, which is spiritual death. That's when the earth was darkened for those three hours during that time frame when Jesus was going through that process of spiritual death. So drinking the cup is analogous to faith that his spiritual death was sufficient to pay for our sins. So when you drink of the cup, it is an outward manifestation of the faith that you have in Jesus Christ, His atonement on the cross, that it was sufficient enough to pay for your sins. You see, we don't, we don't want to just do a ritual without recognizing the purpose. Now, I'm not even going to go into all the distortions to what takes place with regards to communion because there are, there's a certain uh, religion that uh, t- has taken what Christ has obviously meant to be figurative and made it literal. And when we go into Hebrews chapter 10, we find out that Christ died once on the cross for all time. Only one atoning sacrifice was made on our behalf. And so no one has to continue to make atonement through eating or drinking anything because Jesus paid it all on the cross. You don't have to be a believer, uh, excuse me, you don't have to be a member of Country Bible Church in order to partake of this communion. Because if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you are a member of the body of Christ, which makes you qualified to partake of this communion. But what you do need to make certain is that you are filled with the Holy Spirit, for we are to worship Him in spirit and in truth. So we're going to take a moment of silent prayer, and during that time we are to do a little self-analysis, We need to make sure that there are no sins lurking about in our soul, that we won't be distracted. And if you do find something there, of course you know that the grace mechanic that God has given us, church-age believers, to simply acknowledge that sin to Him inaudibly. God knows what you're thinking right now. And you will be forgiven of any of those sins, filled with the Holy Spirit. And then this special time that we have as the body of Christ together to focus upon the Lord Jesus Christ, who He is and what He has done and what He will do. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for this time that we can pause in this rat race life, this fast pace, to remember what is really important, to concentrate on the Lord Jesus Christ, His perfection in His humanity. We pray that You will flood our soul with the doctrines regarding our Lord, for we pray it in His name. Amen. It is our custom to retain the bread until all have been served. He was wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. Chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripe we are healed. The night before our Lord was to be crucified, he took the bread, he blessed it, he broke it, and said, This is my body that is given for you. Take and eat thereof. 
Again, Heavenly Father, we pray that you will help us to focus upon the matchless work of our Lord on the cross on our behalf. That you will give us a true sense of appreciation for who and what he is and what he's done on our behalf. We pray this in his name. Amen. It is our custom to retain the cup until all have been served. All we like sheep have gone astray, each one to his own way. And he, God the Father, has laid upon him, God the Son, the iniquity of us all. God demonstrates his love towards us, and yet while we were yet sinners, Christ died as a sacrifice for us. On that same occasion, our Lord took the cup and said, This is the New Testament in my blood. Take and drink thereof. We will stand and sing hymn number 258. We'll sing it softly on the third verse, crescendo on the last verse. Let us stand as we sing. We're going to continue this morning in the introduction to Joshua. I already gave you the reason why we went to Joshua. You all remember the scripture? 2 Timothy 3.16. You all remember that? For all scripture is God-breathed and profitable for reproof correction for doctrine, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly fur- th- uh, complete, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. All Scripture is God-breathed, including Joshua. And even though it's in the New Testament, I know that people thought I was lost my gourd when I went to 1 Kings. I think I was just finishing 2 Corinthians, and I said, okay, let's go to 1 Kings. I, I wish I had a, a Kodak camera when I said 1 Kings. 1 Kings. I don't know of anybody that, well, except myself, that has taught 1 Kings verse by verse the whole book. Wasn't there a lot there? And I can assure you there's a lot in Joshua. So we looked at why we were going there, and we went through the parallels of the journey that they were taking into the Promised Land. We're on a journey also to the promised land. Only our promised land is not the land of Canaan. It's heavenly. It's heaven itself. We look at the title. The title is very interesting because not only is it the name of the most prominent character in the book, it, it also is what the book is about. I don't know if there's another book in the Bible that has those characteristics to, to it because we looked at Yeshua, which is pronounced Joshua in the English means God saves, or in God is salvation, and that's what the book of Joshua is about. We looked at the person of Joshua, and then we looked at the authorship. It was, most theologians believe that it was written by Joshua himself for the most part, but there are certain parts of it that were not. And now we're going to continue in the Introduction with the place. Where are they going? They're going to cross the Jordan River and go into the promised land, which is called the land of Canaan. I guess I'll go ahead and show you some of my notes. Maybe you can follow along. In the Bible, Canaan is the son of Ham and the grandson of Noah. He is the first, he is first encountered in the story of Noah's drunkenness in Genesis 9, chapter 18. Uh, Excuse me, chapter 9, verse 18. Let's go there. Genesis chapter 9, verse 18. There's a lot of discussion about this verse. 
And we're not exactly clear on all the details, but we can glean some things that are important to our study. Genesis 9, chapter 9, verse 18. Now the sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Ham was the father of Canaan. Notice, the only one that is mentioned about having a son is Ham. So we're going to learn more about uh, Ham and Canaan. But after the flood, everyone that lived from that point on descended from those three, from Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Verse 19. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was populated. Then Noah began farming and planted a vineyard. Nothing wrong with that. You might have a vineyard. In other words, he planted grapes. Verse 21. And he drank of the wine and became drunk and uncovered himself inside his tent. It's, it's thought that there was no such thing as drunkenness until after the flood because there was no bacteria prior to that so there's there was no way that there would be anything that would turn to alcohol but after the flood the whole typography on the earth the whole environment changed drastically now i don't know whether he just processed some grapes and they started fermenting and the next thing you know that tastes pretty good and anyway he was he was drunk and for some reason, he was uncovered himself inside the tent. Verse 22. And Ham, the father of Canaan, again, we have the father of Canaan making a point, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon both their shoulders and walked backwards and covered the nakedness of their father. And their faces were turned away so that they did not see their father's nakedness. I don't know what all is going on there, but it had to be more than Ham just popping into the tent and Moses was doing the jive naked or whatever he was doing, and, and Ham saw it, and uh, that was all there was to it. Had to be more than that. Some suggest that this word looking upon him means satisfaction, uh, desire, so it could have been more than that, but the Bible doesn't tell us what it was. But whatever it was, it was very condemning to not only Ham, but his son Canaan, as we will see. Verse uh, 24. When Noah awoke from his wine, he knew what his youngest son had done to him. Now this would suggest there was more than just looking, but we don't know what it was, but Noah certainly did not like it. Verse 25, so he said, Cursed be Canaan. Isn't that interesting? We get Canaan so many times here already. And he's, he didn't say that he was going to curse Canaan. Uh, excuse me, Ham, he's going to curse Canaan. Now, we don't know if Canaan was a part to this. Maybe Canaan came in and saw his, his uh, grandfather in a state and went and told Ham. Or we just, we, it all would be supposition. It could be that Ham was going to suffer because his son had got into degeneracy just like Ham's, uh, excuse me, like Noah's son, which is Ham, got into degeneracy. We're just, this is all supposition. But we do know for sure that Noah put a curse on Canaan, which was Ham's son. He says, A servant of servants he shall be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed. Be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. Well, Shem is where the, the, the Jews came from the line of Shem. They're Semites. And surely what we see is when Joshua took the Israelites into the promised land, which was called the land of Canaan, then what we see is that indeed they did become the servants of Shem are those who were from the line of Shem, the Semites, which are the Jews. Now, one, I might say one interesting thing here also. Arabs are from the line of, of Shem also. So, we see that they are cousins, but they don't like each other. 
Verse 27. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. So we have way back here in the ninth chapter of Genesis, there is a curse that we can trace out throughout history that has panned out that this curse had gone on and on for quite a while. Verse 28. And Noah lived 350 years after the flood. So all the days of Noah were 950 years, and then he died. Now, of course, you know that conditions had to be different than they are today. If you become a centurion, if you live to be 100 years old these days, it's quite out of the ordinary. And for someone to live 950 years, it's hard for us to imagine. So 350 years after the flood. The reason I'm, I'm giving that information so that when we go back to our notes, well, I didn't take them off the board. They're still up here. We get a little bit of idea about what he's talking about, where this land of Canaan and some background as to where the Israelites were uh, going to. So it says here, Canaan, uh, Canaan's father, Ham, incites the anger of Noah by looking on the nakedness of inebriate Noah, and in retribution for this impropriety, Noah curses Ham's son Canaan. Canaan is to be a slave, a curse that may reflect the fate of some elements of the Canaanite population in Israel, according to Judges chapter 1, verse 28. Since to look on the nakedness of someone suggests a sexual offense, the story may express Israel's disdain for the sexual immorality of the Canaanite world. I got that from Harper's Bible Dictionary. So, the next thing we're going to look at as, is the uh, essentially the location of the land of Canaan. Canaan and Canaanites, the ancient name of a territory and its inhabitants that included parts of what is now Israel with occupied territories in Lebanon. The boundary of Canaan is given in Genesis chapter 10, verse 19. Now, you don't have to go there because I, I had at one time all of these in my notes of the borders and all that. But I thought, well, you know what? They're not going to remember that and it would be better to see something on the map. So I have a few maps for you. Uh, this is, of course, you can recognize the area. Here you have the floodwaters of the Nile right in here. Israel is now located right in this area. But what I wanted you to see is the more larger view when the uh, ark rested on Mount Ararat. The suns came out and they went in different places. And this shows you the top portion of this map is Japheth. This is where his descendants originally started. Over here you have Shem. In this area, and down here you have Ham in this, this area. And, of course, it goes uh, further. But it goes into uh, Canaan. Well, I have another map to show you that the part of Ham's jurisdiction, you can even kind of see it in the colored part here, it goes right up along the coast here where Israel is located. The land of Canaan, that was the promised land. Uh, let me show you the next one that would probably give it a little better. This is interesting because... You have the same area that I showed you just a moment ago. And it, it started when God spoke to Abraham. And he told Abraham to cross the river and go to a land that he was going to show him. Well, here was Ur of the Chaldees, and this is the Euphrates River. And he said, cross the river. And that's what Hebrew means, is one that crosses the river. He had to cross the river in order to go to the promised land. Later on in our study, we're going to see the Israelites were right along in here, and they had to cross a river to get into that same promised land, only this time it was the Jordan River. But you'll note that God, when he called Abraham, didn't take him straight across here. Well, one reason, if you, I have another, I have several maps, and uh, this is all desert. They probably wouldn't make it. And so he goes up here and up to Haran and as we find out that Abraham's father died in Haran. And he did not go on to the promised land. 
because Abraham didn't do all that God required when he first left. The first thing that God told Abraham, leave your family and go to a land that I'm going to show you. Well, Abraham was kind of sketchy about that. He was afraid to leave his family, so he took a lot of his family with him, his, his uh, father. So he, they stopped in Haran, and it was for a while, and this is where he died, and then he went on. So this is the same. Here is a bigger area showing where the promised land is. Here's another map. kind of gives you the same idea. Here you can see the outlines of the country. Here's Israel right over here. And here's Iraq, Kuwait, Assyria. And this was the, here's the Euphrates River. And here's Ur. So he had to go up in here to Haran. And then he comes down the coastline here to Canaan, the promised land. Oh, yeah, here's, here's a nice view. This is actually a view, a, a, a real view from, uh, that NASA took. This is uh, Egypt here, Sinai Peninsula. And then this is the, over here you have uh, Arabia. This is the traditional route of the Exodus. It's just showing when they left, they came here, and they go down to Mount Sinai, and they came up, and they came up to, here's Canaan here. This is the Dead Sea, and up here higher, you have the Sea of Galilee. The land of Canaan is all this area right in here. So that showing you these maps I thought would be better than trying to give you specific land markers that you wouldn't get an idea. And now we don't have to rely on map makers. We can get satellites that actually take pictures, and that's one of the uh, satellite pictures. Okay, now we're going to zero in a little bit closer to show you just the land itself. This was, I wanted to give you an outer view to kind of give you a perspective of what the promised land was like. Here is a map. It's not as big as the others, but you can see the Dead Sea here, the Sea of Galilee, and you can see the Jordan River going through here. All this area here, I've got a map that's much clearer than this, but this is just kind of give you an overview. The Canaanite area is here, and the Israelites were right along here when they crossed the Jordan River to cross into the Promised Land. Uh, now, I like this one because it shows you the terrain. Here's the, the Salt Sea or the Dead Sea, Sea of Galilee. Here's the Jordan River. And you see this land of Canaan. This is all the promised land right here. And the Bible talks about it being divided up into seven nations or city-states. And here they are right here. You have the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, and the Gergesites, and the Hivites. Now over here on the east side of the Jordan, you have the Edomites, the Moabites, and the Ammonites. There's a lot of ites all in here. But that will give you an idea when we're talking about the promised land and where these peoples were located. Here, is, the Philistines used to employ this area right along the coastline. They were sea peoples. Here's Gaza right here. So they were right in that area, and it gives you kind of an idea what that area would look like. And then later on, uh, by the time we get to the end of Joshua, we're going to see that they, were, they divided the uh, land up and that's what it looked like. All 12 tribes inhabited and took over this. Here's the same sea coast right here, Dead Sea, Sea of Galilee. And you see that there were Jews or Israelites on both sides of the Jordan all in here. And we'll get to that all in due time. So that's what we are looking at with regards to the place. The date is approximately 1400 B.C. is when this took place. The Philistines were uh, still strong in Palestine at that time. Now we're going to look at the book itself, uh, Joshua the book. And it's the sixth book of the Old Testament. And it's the first of the historical books which concludes with Nehemiah. The first five books of the Bible 
is the Pentateuch, which Pente means, remember, 550, that type of thing. And that is the books of the law. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And then you have Joshua, which is the first of the historical books. This book stands first in the second of the three sections of the Hebrew Bible. First of all, you have the law, which is the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. Then you have the historical books, or the books of the prophets. And then the others in the Old Testament are called the writings. And that's the way the Jews divided the Old Testament. It gives us the account of God's chosen people, the Israelites, from the death of Moses through the acquisition of the promised land until the death of Joshua. So that's where it starts. You get a little idea of where this book fits into the whole scheme of things. And I'm going to put my notes back up here if I can find them. There they are. Okay, so you, this next part that I have has to do with um, the Amarna tablets. Well, maybe I should show you this before I uh, go over those notes because uh, have any of you heard of the Amarna tablets? Okay, a few of you. Um, Here's a picture of the Amarna tablets. The Amarna letters were, are unusual in Egyptological research, being mostly written in Akkadian cuneiform, the writing system of ancient Mesopotamia, rather than the ancient Egypt. The known tablets currently total 382. So this, you, you'll, you'll see why this is important, because there's always skeptics that uh, want to uh, foo-foo the Bible and think that things aren't, uh, it's, it's all hocus-pocus, make-believe. These are, the Marna tablets are among the most remarkable discoveries of the age, dating from about B.C. 1480 down to the time of Joshua, and consisting of official communications from Amorite, Phoenician, and Philistine chiefs to the king of Egypt. They afford a glimpse into the actual condition of Palestine prior to Hebrew invasion and illustrate and confirm the history of the conquest. Isn't that something that we have physical proof that these things occurred? A letter also still extant from a military officer master of the captains of Egypt, dating from near the end of the reign of Ramesses II, gives a curious account of a journey, probably official, which he undertook through Palestine as far north as uh, Aleppo and an insight into the social condition of the country at that time. Among the things brought to light by this letter and the Amarna tablets is the state of confusion and decay that had now befallen Egypt. Hmm, isn't that interesting? I wonder why they were in a disarray. The Egyptian garrisons that had held position of Palestine from the time of Thothmes uh, III, some 200 years before, had now been withdrawn. So they had uh, garrisons in that area that had been withdrawn. The way was thus open for Hebrews, for the Hebrews. In the history of the conquest, there is no mention of Joshua having encountered any Egyptian force. Now, isn't that interesting? Especially as you hear the rest. The tablets contain many appeals to the king of Egypt for help against the inroads of the Hebrews, but no help seems ever to have been sent. Is not this just such a state of things as might have been anticipated as a result of the disaster of the Exodus? You know what we're, what we're talking about. When God got through with Egypt, there was nothing left. They were in shambles. They couldn't help 
anybody. They were just trying to survive themselves. In many points, as shown under the various articles, <coughs> excuse me, the progress of the conquest is remarkably illustrated by the tablets. The value of the modern discoveries in their relation to the Old Testament history has been well described. The difficulty of establishing the charge of lack of historical credibility. Now, he's saying it's hard for those who would allege that there's not any historical credibility to the book of Joshua and its account. So he's saying it's, it's uh, the difficulty of establishing the charge of lack of historical credibility as against the testimony of the Old Testament has of late years greatly increased. It's become harder and harder to criticize the Bible in these issues. The outcome of recent excavations and exploration is altogether against it. So here we have uh, information that helps us realize that this isn't just a bunch of uh, hooey. Then I have one quote from Eastern Bible uh, Dictionary. Uh, recent discoveries touch the events recorded in the Bible at, the, at very many different points in many different generations mentioning the same persons, countries, peoples, events that are mentioned in the Bible and showing beyond question that these were strictly historical. Now, the reason I went through all that, I didn't want to put you to sleep, but what I did want to do is for you to realize we are not reading stories in the Bible. Uh, that one quote that I had had story in it, and I just paused and thought, they are accounts, historical accounts that literally took place. And unlike Mormonism, which has no archaeological examples or proof of anything, everything that is recorded in the Bible, especially here in these historical books, can be verified through archaeology, through historical accounts, through the Armana tablets, through a host of, of information, and it is exactly right down the line. So we can be sure that this isn't just a bunch of um, Mother Goose rhymes. This is God revealing the things that actually took place. Now, I don't know uh, if those of you who are going to assist in the meal today, if you would like to leave at this point and go back and help, or if, I don't know if people have already left, but this is your chance to do it now. Maybe some of you have already, yeah, okay, some of you are leaving there, okay. The book of Joshua records the fulfillment of the patriarchal promise as Israel appropriated the land pledged to her by her faithful God centuries before. The remarkable thing about what we are reading, or are going to read, we haven't got to the first verse yet. But I think we might next Sunday, but I'm not sure. Wait till you, oh, there are some, see, I'm giving you the background, so when we start with verse 1, you won't miss out on all the great things to, that brought everything to that point. And there are some wonderful principles with regards to God's timing and using uh, his, his men, that he, the man that is the right man. Uh, there's a lot that we're, we're going to get into there. But when we're talking about it fulfills, the, the book of Joshua records the fulfillment of the patriarchal promises you saw the maps on where it started. It started with a Gentile in a, in a very uh, pagan city called Ur. And God tapped him on the hand, so to speak, and said, I want you to do something. And you know who that man that was? Abraham. And God gave Abraham certain unconditional promises. Some of the promises that he gave Abraham has already come true. But there are a lot of promises yet to be fulfilled. Well, why should we believe in promises that were made uh, maybe some 4,000 years ago? And why is that relevant today? And if they hadn't come to pass now, why should we believe that they will? Well, we always go to the prophecies that have already been fulfilled. We go to the cities, the names of the places. Even most of the cities that 
the Jews went into in the promised land are still known by that name today. And the geographical descriptions of the land match exactly where these are. And they dig into the ground and they get the artifacts and, and they see, okay, this is where a certain battle took place. Wait till we get to the uh, Jericho. And we see that it's the only city that the walls fell outward instead of inward. Normally, when you besiege a city, you pound on the walls, you're trying to get in, and they fall inward. But Jericho is, 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 is one of the uh, rare exceptions where the walls fell outward. Well, some of you are looking at me kind of strangely. Well, that's all right. We'll get to Jericho. But first of all, we've got to finish the introduction and cross the river. And, <laughs> and it's a big river. So uh, we'll get into all of that now. I'd like everyone, please, to bow your heads and close your eyes. I don't know everyone here. And the issue with you today, if you do not know Jesus Christ, if you're on a journey, you know that, but you don't know where the end is going to be. Well, you can, you can take care of that this morning because we just saw in uh, John chapter 6, verse 47, He who believes in the Son has eternal life. It's not what you do, it's what you believe. And you can inaudibly say to God the Father, as we all have our heads bowed, that this is the moment that you're believing in Jesus Christ. And in that moment, you will be born again. You will have eternal salvation, eternal life, and it can never be taken away from you. What a wonderful gift that is offered to all of us because of the sacrifice that Christ has already made on our behalf. So we can know for certain that Christ paid it all. There's nothing left for us to do. It's an issue of trusting on your own human good works or Christ's perfect work. Now, Father, we thank you for this time that you have given us yet another day that we can pause and focus and remember all the wonderful things about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It inspires hope, confidence of what He is going to do for us in the future. It also instills the confidence that we can trust on in Him moment by moment. We thank You for all these things and pray that You will help us to meditate upon them. For we pray it in Christ's most high and holy name. Amen.